Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, after much screwing around, uh, finally we're going to be going So, um, what I'm going to talk about today, so the introductory stuff, I want to get out the notion of why you do this, why to study psychology from a mature perspective at all. So, and this is one of those things where it, I imagine to everyone in this room it is self-evident. Uh, but it's still maybe the, the case that, you know, maybe you're not entirely sure about this. And also, it isn't something that everybody who studies psychology thinks of. Like I said, it's sort of a self-selecting group. It's like in, in learning class when I eventually talk about um, the animal rights movement. Well, it's an animal learning class. You're not going to get a whole lot of people going, don't do experiments on animals. They're in a class of experiments on animals. So it's unlikely, right? So it's sort of self-selecting. <laughs> so it's not something I'm trying to convince you. I'm trying to give you, I think, today, well, maybe some of you are up. Maybe this just fit your timetable and you hate me. If so, to hell with you and your people. Um, don't even know what your people meant. Uh, it could be an ethnic group, uh, perhaps just people who think like you, people with the same color hair. Choose whatever you find the most offensive. Um, so it's more sort of giving a background to where this stuff comes from. And I mean, to me, the first, the most obvious reason is well, we're animals. So let's see. How do we study? about animals and their behavior and other things. I think we look at it from a biological perspective, which means we have to bring evolution um, into the mix. Darwin, in fact, talked about using an evolutionary approach looking at behavior. Did he actually say evolutionary psychology? No. But did he talk about behavior? Did he talk about cognition? He certainly did. He talked a lot about behavior, but he also talked about in, in, in um, Descent of Man, he actually mentions uh, <coughs> chimpanzees looking at a waterfall, and he calls it primitive religion, because they stand there sort of and stare at it like they're in awe. So he's talking about this, it's, kind of, it's a funny passage, there's a lot of great stuff in Darwin, like a lot of fun, fun reading, because he also was a really good writer. Um, so he certainly talked about looking at the evolution of behavior. There's no argument there. William James was very, and William James, uh, for those of you guys who don't know, uh, who are the, the biology students in the room probably, and some of the psych students that didn't pay attention, they learned all about that history stuff. Um, William James was, uh, is sort of the, he wrote the first psychology textbook called The Principles of Psychology. All the faculty got free water bottles with the new logo. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> yeah, we got see. We, got, we changed our font. <laughs> font changed, so we all got water bottles. I don't know. We got free stuff. I'm, I'm all for free stuff, even when it's free stuff. This is, you know, this is worse than Apple giving people a U2 record. And that's that's the worst controversy right now in the world. Because an album showed up that I didn't have to listen to if I didn't want to. That's pretty. Shut up. People should just shut up and stop complaining that. They got something for free. Shitty stuff when it's free is good. 
right? It's like I go to conferences, they got shitty conference coffee. It's like, people go, that's coffee, it's horrible. Steve, what'd you pay for it? Who gives a shit? It's <laughs> free coffee. But if you don't like YouTube, don't, don't download the album. Don't scream and yell and write blog posts, you idiots. Okay, anyway, moving on. Like, this is not the world's best water bottle, but I, what did I pay for? See? The, to pay for all these water bottles, we probably don't have to take a, take a pay cut. But anyway, William James was the father, what, the father of North American psychology. The, the original psychologist is uh, Wilhelm Wundt, the first real experimental psychologist. But James was the first... The guy who wrote the first textbook, he wrote this book called Principles of Psychology in 1890. Uh, 1879 is when psychology really starts. Kind of like you can put a date on when biology starts, right? Because Dar uh, Darwin published his origins in 1858. That's when biology starts. Before that, it's not really biology. There's people collecting books, right? And classifying graphs, which is perfectly fun. It's not biology. Um, there's people talking about thinking, but, you know, going back to antiquity, right? But we don't call it psychology. Wundt comes along in Germany in Leipzig in 1879 and starts a lab. Only 11 years later, William James writes the first textbook of psychology called Principles of Psychology. It's a book you ought to look at at some point if you're interested in psychology at all. Because it's fun to read. Because it's amazing how much stuff he gets right by just guessing. He gets a lot of stuff wrong, too, but he gets a lot of stuff right. Um, and James was really influenced by, Dar by Darwin. Uh, James took a sort of functionalist approach what does the behavior accomplish? James invented phrases like the stream of consciousness. That's, that's his. That's his. You know, you know Henry James, author? That's his brother. So interesting. Who was very psychological in his writing, and he was a much better writer, probably, so it's very, it's like they ought to, they should have had different jobs. So Jane, even our early on, William James, one of the first psychologists, speaks of evolution and, and Darwin function. Now, most psychologists out there, and I think we would say that, I don't think that's true in our department, but I think in the, in the wild, in their natural habitat, most psychologists adhere to what's called the, what, what Cosmides and Tubi, who wrote a, one of the original evolutionary psych books, uh, husband, I think they were a husband and wife team. And I say were because I think they got divorced, but they still work together. But I may be making that up, too. I, I know they're married at some point in their lives. I was waiting to Tubi. Right, you'll never forget those names because they're silly names. So Cosmetics and Tubi talk about the standard social science model. Later on, Stephen Pinker has built the, the Blank Slate, which is more of a popular, popular science kind of book, which is a fun book, by the way. Also mentions the standard social science model. And I'll explain what the standard social science model is in a second. But most psychologists pretty much adhere to that. Now, if that's their approach, this is going to affect their theories, their research, their hypotheses. It's going to affect how they approach their, the work that they do, obviously, right? Because it's the, it's the sort of... If you take it that most, say, biologists, like 99.999999%, Accept evolution by natural selection to be true, then that affects their research, their theories, their hypotheses, right? If people that are physicists accept Newtonian mechanics, which I imagine most do, 
for big stuff anyway, or stuff that's moving at the speed of light, that's going to affect stuff. It's the same thing here. Now, you might say, well, that's okay. If it's the standard social science model, what's the problem? Well, the problem is it's completely at odds with evolutionary theory and probably reality. You know, this is Jen, just letting you know. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's talk about what the standard social science model is. The first one is, first part of it is the blank slate. Or remember what John Locke talked about, the tabula rasa, right? The idea of the, the experience is what makes the person, people, makes the person. That everything, all behavior and cognition is environmental. It's all based on the environment. That any, that everybody starts out the same, and if everybody was put in exactly the same environment, everyone ends up the same. Yeah, the idea that experience affects behavior, denying that would be stupid. Right? Because that's called learning. Of course. The idea, though, that it's only that and that everything is equal is crazy. It's, 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 uh, it makes us feel good to think that's true. It makes us feel good to think that's true, doesn't it? I mean, it's nice to think that, well, that person who's a, uh, I don't know, let's uh, think of somebody who's not uh, problems, I don't know. Somebody who's, who's uh, you see a person who's really, uh, who's homeless, and who's uh, uh, never went to school, and, oh, I don't know, a uh, heroin addict, and uh, let's throw in, uh, also criminal, some sort of criminal, uh, I don't know, does, that break, does breaking and injury to pay for the heroin. Okay, so we got a person who's pretty down in the line. It's nice to think that if we could have taken that person at the age of three and just given them the same life that we had, that they'd be just like us. And it feels really good. And to a point, it's probably true. The person probably has a shitty life, right? They probably have. It's not like heroin addicts are born. Right? It's like that movie Gattaca. Well, it looks like 29% chance your kid will be a heroin addict. So it's, it's not that. I'm not saying it's all hardwired, and you come out and it's like, well, your, your future's predetermined. But it's not that everybody is going to react everything the same. No matter how much training you give me, even if you took me back to when I was four years old, and let's assume my eyes, let's assume my eyes were okay, I'm never going to be able to run as fast as you said, Bolt. I'm never going to be Wayne Gretzky on a hockey. It's not going to happen. Right? And dare I say, I don't think Wayne Gretzky would be me if you taught him and got him to read enough books. Not that I'm, you know, I'm not comparing, I'm not the Wayne Gretzky of psychology. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of a sort of cloak in you. Um, it's a subtle hockey joke for some of you that got that. I work hard and I'm, I play a little dirty. Um, <laughs> but it really feels like... <laughs> I wish it were so, 
right? Because we could fix stuff a lot more easily probably if we could just say let's, and it's, I'm not, again, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we shouldn't give people opportunities. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to help that person have his really down their life. And I'm not saying if that person had a better life, except experience, they would have done better, probably would be the heroin addict who's almost also the breaking answer to do better heroin addicts. The class has taken a very dark turn. <laughs> um, but, for every person who grew up in a, let's, let's think of a couple of recent famous people. Grow up child of an alcoholic father, a stepfather, and an alcoholic mother, and the stepfather used to beat the mother, and grew up dirt poor in Arkansas. Or grew up as a single mother who was a white woman, but she has a black husband, a father, guy leaves, she's on food stamps, welfare. So those two people became the President of the United States. One of them is Barack Obama. That's the move the black father. And the other is Bill Clinton. Why are we so amazed by those stories? Because of the shitty lives they had and they overcame it, right? There's something special about those people. Did their parents own the church? Well, at least Barack's mom did. Barack's dad so took it off. But they didn't get all those advantages, did they? So, but if you, and we get so struck by those stories because it's like, see? It makes us feel good. So if only this were true, but it probably isn't. I think it's actually, it's so simplistic that it almost is laughable. But you have to tell, the amazing thing is trying to explain to people that everybody isn't equal. I didn't say everybody doesn't deserve equal treatment or equal opportunity. That's not what I said. But everyone isn't equal. You aren't. Just that way. No matter how hard some people try, they're just never going to get calculus. And no matter how good the teacher is, right? Even if it's Edward James Almost in uh, Stand and Deliver, you've seen that. Okay. Teaches inner city kids calculus. You're the best. But anytime I see him now, I just think Commander Adama. I can't see him take him seriously in any other role now. He was a judge on the West Wing. I was watching it. I was going, No, man, that's like he's gonna. He's just, you know, Colonel Ty's going to come in and he's going to be all drunk. <laughs> in the fucking ship! So, it's silly. It's kind of a silly approach. Okay, here's, it, this, you know what goes with this? This, biology is irrelevant. Right? If experience is all that matters, biology has, except for the fact that maybe uh, we could put, throw in, uh, there has to be the circuitry in there to do the learning. But that'd be it. That'd be it. Wow. People really focus their whole career on this. Uh huh. Our whole disciplines like this. There really are. Most of them are in what are called the social sciences. Feel free to figure out which ones you want to think they are. Sociology. So, <laughs> and there is good stuff done in those disciplines, okay? I want to I underline that I think that this approach is stupid. Like, it's, it's an odds with reality, but it doesn't mean good things don't come out of those things, okay? I want to make that clear. I mean, I'm not trashing. I think that the approach, the underlying assumptions are silly, but the work that can be done can be good. 
but it could be so much better is sort of what I'm saying. Right? I have heard people say that, for example, I've heard this one, that if you took a little girl and trained her as hard as you train a boy sprinter, it would be a girl that could be the same goal. Well, it's not going to happen. Just simply look at it. Just no. Are there women that can run faster than me? Probably most of you. <laughs> yes. Are high-level female sprinters amazing athletes? Uh-huh. Damn right they are. Do they get as much funding as the guys? Probably not. Probably not. They get pretty close, though. The Olympics and that. Do women run under 10 seconds? Women don't run under 11. Does it mean they're not fast and amazing? It's awesome. And if you, one of the things you can look at is you can look at, say, for example, the change over from sprinting to long distance running. And the, the, the gap between women and men in long distance running, if you look at the curves and if they, if they continue the way they are, eventually women will be better because they're getting more and more training, et cetera. Probably will end up being better long distance running. <coughs> And again, this is talking, I'm talking here about groups, but I say running faster. I'm not talking about individuals. Right? There are women that are better runners. But there's, again, and I don't want to harp on male-female differences, but this is something that people like to ignore that there's any difference between the sexes. Um, so I'm not trying to just take on that. And in fact, typically, women and men are way more the same than they are different. We're way more the same, uh, our species, between the sexes than any other species I can think of. Especially any other primate. Especially any other primate. So there is good work done in these areas, but I'm saying that it could be better. And the idea that, of someone saying that biology doesn't matter, see, is, 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 is kind of silly. I hope you see that. Now, this one, next one, is actually kind of a little more subtle. And it's the idea that there may, must be only a few learning mechanisms. So there must be only a few learning mechanisms. Now, why would that be? Because I think you can see that and that. Well, there must only be a few learning mechanisms because experience would, if, if, it's, if, it's, if, if we take two people and put them in the same situation, they're going to have to learn the same way, right? If we take two people or two groups of people and put them in different situations, it's all the environment that did it, so it can't be based on any mechanism, mechanistic difference between groups, because biology is irrelevant. Therefore, there must only be one or a very small number of learning mechanisms. I doubt you'd see a lot of psychologists today that accept these two. This is more going into areas like sociology, uh, things like that. That is still something that some psychologists hold to. A few. Quite a few. All right. Questions so far? 
But please. Are there different scientific models that sociologists use? I don't know that a lot of sociologists do call themselves scientists. Oh, okay. So that's part of it. Are there sociologists that do scientific work? For sure. Um, I don't know a lot about the work people do here, so I can't comment on, on, on folks here. I do know work that other colleagues at other schools write. Sort of, I, one guy I knew was a sociologist. He's more of an anthropological kind of approach. He studied um, funeral rituals in different cultures, which is kind of cool and fascinating. And I think you call him, he took a scientific approach and he's any doubt about that. So, uh, and he also studied uh, sort of, but I, I think we call what he did scientific. I also think that he would, I think if I held him down, which is, I don't think I could because he's a big guy, I have an empty, but I doubt he'd actually, he'd probably say, no, that's a little silly, but biology is very relevant. But of course, in what he was doing, it doesn't really matter anyway, right? Because if he's just looking at funeral rituals around the world, he's looking at the biological basis of that, well, it might actually be interesting, right? Because it might be looking at some commonalities, and maybe that shows some things about how human brains have evolved, but that's not really what he's interested in. So it doesn't really matter a whole lot in that case, right? Just what I'm saying that, that while it's not, there's been good stuff done in areas, like I said, and I think, by the way, there's also shitty sociology, you know, psychology, right? I think stuff is crap. And there's shitty biology and shitty physics. There's crappy everything. There's lousy art. 99% of art's crap, and that 1% makes it crap to be a human being. <laughs> right? It's, like you look at it and go, oh my god, that's incredible. I should have made that. You know. And as much as I'm all for just finding stuff out for its own sake, that's why people have said to me, why didn't you study memory and birds? And I say, because. Because <laughs> I can, you know. I'm not curing cancer. <laughs> you know, it's not like it's that important, right? So, I think it's another approach to knowledge. It's just not, I think it's not a scientific approach often, though there are people that do sociology do. I don't, I don't really know what people here do because we're in different divisions and we don't have a lot of like, interdepartmental talks and things like that. So I don't think I can comment too much on if, if they're doing science or not. I, I don't know. I, have to, I will ask, next time I see some of the sociology department, I'll ask them. Because I'm curious. I don't know if they would consider what they do science or not. And just because something is a science doesn't make it unimportant. Uh, art's pretty damn important, too. Right? History is pretty damn important, too. So it's a good question, though. Okay. So this model, the standard social science model, well, why is it wrong? Well, development kind of needs biology. You can't have a developing creature of some sort without there being biology in there. So when you hear language, you learn language. We have a language learning system. Human beings are we're built for language. We're the only animal that is, by the way. So you look at we have parts of our brain that are specialized for receiving and producing language. And you know, it's interesting that even if that language isn't spoken, 
those parts of your brain are used when you, if you learn, say, American Sign Language when you're young. You learn those things when you're young. Like, I mean, when I say young, I'm talking like as a baby and a one-year-old too, and a toddler. Same way that you learn language. And anybody here who's, uh, any of you guys have had a kid or you got a big little brother, little sister, whatever, you don't sit your kid down and give them classes in language. You talk to them and then they just start talking. It just works. Because we have parts of our brain that are hooked up to do language, like we saw in the video, right? Same thing if you teach them sign language. If you're talking sign language, which I, 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 I'm always afraid of like, around people that do, do sign language because I gesture a lot, I'm afraid I'm just saying horrible things. But it's also really just gibberish. Did you remember that guy? You know some Mandela thing? The guy that was doing the fake sign language? That's the greatest <laughs> trick ever. I mean, I feel kind of bad. If I was a deaf person, I'd be like, come on. It'd be like if they had a, a, a you know, an interpreter, say his name was an interpreter for, for, for doing Japanese, and I just went, oh, what's it? And he went, what? And he that vaguely sounds kind of Japanese-y from a couple of anime shows I've seen. So I turned them off because they're stupid because no one's eyes are that big. Um, but, hate anime. I don't understand what people like. I, if you want to like it, that's fine. It's your taste. I just don't get it. My daughter way into that stuff. And she, I look at it and go, Johnny eyes, and they're not. That's how people talk. <laughs> crazy. And they're weird. The stories are weird. And they're all vaguely, strangely sexual. And I find it really creepy. <laughs> like, sort of hypersexualized children. Anyway, that's beside the point. That's, I have personal problems. But <laughs> if you were to teach, and not no, teach, you're just a kid, okay, baby. baby. Uh, this means this. You just do that around, they learn sign language. And the part of their brain, the brokers area, that lights up if you were speaking your native tongue in, a, um, in, in an fMRI, it lights up when they use their hands to talk, when they use sign language. That's pretty cool. We're built for language. We are, we're hooked up for it. There's something special about us. And the interesting thing is that most recent people that most recently people say that language probably evolved from gestures. They probably started out with gestures. And then someone throwing in a oh, with that and it becomes words. So no matter how many hockey stats I flash at you, you will not become a hockey stats expert by the age of four. I've tried this with two children. Didn't work. <laughs> Didn't work. Many of you know Madeline, my daughter, you could ask her how many goals Rock Richard scored in his career. I've told her that hundreds of times. She has no idea. It's 544. And that's actually simpler stuff. Language is hard. Those of us who, everybody here have tried to learn a second language past the age of, say, 10. Yeah, that's yeah, hard, eh? Before then, it's easy. Anybody here go to French immersions again? Yeah. So. When you were in kindergarten, you remember your first day of kindergarten? You're like, I have no idea what the teacher's saying. Was it like that? And then, like, three weeks in, you're like, oh, so that's it. I'm not trying to say anything. It just becomes a thing. You just do it. Because you're a kid, and you can internalize grammar. We're hooked up for you. As an adult, it's hard. It's hard. Right? Hockey stats are probably easier if we do like a task analysis. They're probably they're just facts. 
guess you could ask the question, well, why? Well, it's the same kind of question. My mom's dog does never learn to speak English. Because she's a dog. Dogs are <laughs> dogs. You know? It's really pretty simple. It's, it's really easy. Why, why can't you remember when you cashed 30,000 seeds six months ago? It's because you're not a Clark's Nutcracker. You're a person. The cool thing you can do, though, is, you know what humans can do? We can invent stuff, and then, like, it apps, and then we can say, oh, we'll see it here. We'll see it, and we just pull it up. Clark's Nutcrackers do that just through, being, you know, being Clark's Nutcrackers. They have an adaptive specialization of learning that they remember where they hide food from six months ago. So, I mean, we're hooked up. We have evolved in a different niche. Ours is one. Humans are pretty amazing because we can live anywhere. Right? We live anywhere. Don't we? We don't have one single environment we live in. We just live everywhere. Because if we just, you know, people shouldn't live up here. It's stupid. It's cold. <laughs> right? Because if we were like every other animal, we wouldn't live up here. But what do we do? We invent things like we saw a video there, stone axes and spears and stuff, so we can make clothes. No one should live north of probably Ohio. Maybe even Virginia, you know? It's probably ideal right around there. Does it get too hot or too cold? So part of us, part of being a human, is the ability, for example, to learn language. Um, Part of being a clerk's nutcracker is the ability to recover seeds you've stored six months ago. So you can actually have an early breeding season. And you don't have to migrate because you hide seeds and you eat those seeds all winter. So then a migratory bird, same as black-eyed chickens, they'll migrate, they hide seeds so they can a blue jay, same way. So So there is such a thing as human nature. See, the, the denial of human nature is something, again, that's sort of standard social science, because it's saying, no, no, that's all about your, your upbringing, it's all about your environment. There's, there's such a thing as human nature. What I mean by that is there are things that humans do, and there are things that all humans do. And in fact, I love that kind of stuff. I love that kind of stuff. It really makes me happy to think that no matter what my culture is, and I think culture is interesting to me. Don't misunderstand me. I think it's cool, and I'm glad there's diversity and wonderfulness everywhere. But everybody speaks, but only our species does that. Isn't that cool? Like that should really blow you away. And while we all may have different languages. We all can learn languages. No matter how long I sit with a chimp, a baby chimp, and talk to it, it never learns language. But if you have a baby who's born here and then moves to, uh, 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 let's pick a country that has a language way different, Japan, that's a very different, right? very different language. In European languages, you can usually tell what words are. They start and end. Japanese, I can't tell. But they'll learn Japanese, and they'll be fine. 
It's amazing, right? Some of your parents probably were immigrants, right? From other countries. And then you hear them speak, and they, to this day, still speak with some ridiculous accent, right? And they still just words I can't say. And you're like, no, that's not how you say that. Because you grew up here, and you've heard how people spoke here. It's amazing. But I think human nature goes beyond just language. There's other things about it, and that's really, that's what this course is about. What does being human mean? What is human nature? Okay, the standard sort of social science model divides nature and nurture into two things, into two different things. That, and you've heard people say, people say this all the time, psychologists just don't use anybody like this. You know, nature versus nurture is in your upbringing, is it your biology? So you'll hear people say like, oh, intelligence, is that because of your, your genes, because of like your parents' intelligence, or is it because of the environment you grew up in? And the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> and the biology students in the room would know this, that there's the, the idea of the interaction principle, that you have to, that development needs something to develop in. That you can't have, you can't have genes in an environment, you can't have an environment without genes. Can, but it's not very interesting because there's nothing developing. Can you? It's impossible then to split these two things apart. There's a simplistic notion that genes set some sort of limit. That if your parents give you this, this so you inherit from your parents. The possibility of having it, let's, I'm making this up, none of this is bullshit, I'm making this up. Uh, that you, you, have, you inherit from your parents uh, the, the possibility of having an IQ of 140. And then if you have the right environment, you can sort of fill the glass up as far as 140. It's not true. It's ridiculous. And again, I hope the biology students especially don't realize how ridiculous a notion that would be and how simplistic an idea of how genes work that is. It's, it's, it's completely ridiculous. Right? And again, if you've learned anything at all in your life about genetics, you know that like, you know, this gene turns on this other gene, then this protein is produced, which turns on three other genes and turns these two off. And that just happened now. And that was just in one cell. And there's resilience of so it's not that simple. And you can't even it's just wrong. Genes interact with the environment. That's how it works. So learning, for example, needs a mechanism and so forth to allow experience to change behavior. And the neat thing is, though, there's another example of how humans are humans. Like, Everybody learns the same way. Everybody
does, uh, shows classic conditioning. Everybody's just awkward conditioning. But everybody learns language the same way. Because there's such, such a thing as human nature. By the way, you all hear about these things. Oh, visual, I'm a visual learner. Oh, I'm a visual learner. No, you're not. We're all just learners. Don't, that's not true. That's, there is no basis for that stuff at all. It sounds really nice again. I'm an auditory learner. I'm a visual learner. I'm a tactile learner. Well, don't touch me, man. I don't want that. Don't be off. Put your hand in my face as I talk so you can feel my lips. That's weird. Get away from me. <laughs> a lot of things that get trendy in education very often they crap. It's a shame because it's not like it's important how we educate our children. Um, so, the mechanism, and there's many mechanisms, many different ones, but we have to have some mechanism that's built there by, by biology, built by your genes interacting with your environment. The thing is, people want this because this is so simple. They want to say, this is caused by this, this is caused by that. And it's not a satisfying answer to say, yeah, it's not that easy. And again, we can talk about things like heritability, but that's not saying what percentage of something is genetic. Right? The heritability of your height. The heritability of height in humans is about 0.8, which means that 80% of the variance in height can be accounted for by variance in your genes. Okay? But that little but. So you said like everyone's born with their predisposition. No, that's too simple. That's the thing. The predisposition idea is the idea of like, you know, like I said, your parents can get an IQ of 140 and then you can fill the glass up. Okay. It's not that easy. It's too bad it's not that easy because it's an easy thing to understand. Right? Um, so, we can talk about predispositions as shorthand, kind of. So I can say that you're more, more or less likely to be a cocaine addict, or more or less likely to be psychotic, or to be successful. I wasn't thinking you, but okay. <laughs> Especially, perhaps, you are psychotic, in which case, come by the house. But, I mean, it might be the case that more or less likely to end up being really good at math. But, so I can probably say that and make some predictions based on it, but it doesn't really, the world isn't quite that simple. It's really a shame that it isn't. Not really, no. I mean, could I say, for example, that parents, children of parents who are alcoholics tend to be alcoholics? Mm-hmm. Can say that. Can I say that there is a heritability to it? So if I look at the genetic factors, in other words, looking at the variance in genes, I look at the variance in behavior, I could say that that is a hair of a 0.5, meaning 50% of the variance in the behavior I can account for by variance in the genes. Does that mean that 50% of being an addict is, 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 is genetic? And the answer is no. It's like human height is 80% heritable. But does that mean that everything to my neck is from my parents and everything from here up is me? Is, is, is the kind of food I was given as a kid? No. If only it were that simple. And that's the problem with the term heritability and the idea of heritability calculations. Something could be 100% heritable and completely environmentally changeable. So one of the problems people have with, with, with these sort of biological explanations of behavior, when I say biological explanation, that includes the environment, by the way, um, is that they think that the word heritable, for example, means it comes from genes and it's hardwired. And again, I think the, you guys in here that have taken more biology know that, that doesn't, that's not what that means. Right? 
Other questions? A good question. I want you to get clear on this because this is a whole different way to think about psychology. Unless you've had me teach a bunch of classes, then this is just this is just really my uh, a class for my own ego. Um, actually, no, that would be an animal cognition class that I taught once. Five, eight people took it. The other time, it got canceled. Standard social science model of natural sciences. We cannot study behavior in a vacuum. We can't, because you stop behaving pretty quickly in a vacuum. When you have a kid who's got autism, you really are careful about using idioms and, and metaphors and stuff like that. And I think if I said that to him, he'd be looking at me like, well, why wouldn't there be air? So if you can't say to my son John, no, no problem, piece of cake. He looks at me, so there's cake? <laughs> no, this means. Then if you explain it to him, he uses it for the next three weeks for everything. Oh, piece of cake, piece of cake, piece of cake. Stop. 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 Every time you do a psychology experiment, someone shouldn't say yes, but what about, how, was, how did that work on the plains of Africa 200,000 years ago? Oh, no. Just like every time you do biology, you don't go, well, yes, but what's the evolutionary significance of this? You don't, that's in the back of your mind, perhaps, but that's not what you're writing in a paper. Right, so if you do the, you know, the Ash Line experiment, one of my all-time favorite social psychology experiments, where we have the three lines, I ask you which line is longer, and obviously it's the one on the right. But before you can say anything, the three other people in the room who I'm paying say, middle. And you look at the line. What? And then after a little while, and they got a whole script set up. And they're going to always say the wrong line. And after about five or six times, you go, just think, well, I'm just going to wait and say what they say. It's fascinating, it's conformity, it's fascinating stuff. By the way, it's not like your perceptions change or anything like that. It's just that you start to go, is this worth fighting over, basically? I'm just going to go along with it. Right? I'll just go along with everybody else. And if you make the people of higher status, you're more likely to go along with the crowd. So if you say that these people are all line experts, I don't know, engineers, these are the lines, right? Or you, you say, or they're all a little bit older than the subject. People tend to like to just go along with the crowd. That's fascinating behavior. Okay? Does it have an evolutionary angle to it? Probably. Probably going along with the crowd actually is a pretty adaptive strategy. But we don't have to worry about that when we, when we think about this kind of phenomenon. But ignoring it completely and saying, nope, that's just because of our society, man. That seems a little silly. So we just can't ignore the biology, is what I'm saying. So exempting the behavior of organisms from the principles of biology is like exempting the behavior of atoms from the principles of physics. You don't study chemistry and go, well, I'm not going to worry about physics. You may not be doing physics, but you don't ignore physics. Right? Just like when you do biology, you don't say, well, I'm doing cellular biology. 
I'm just going to ignore chemistry. Well, you don't have to really worry about chemistry a lot, but you probably should know some and realize that it's there. So a nice example here is we, I don't think we can ignore the evolution of sociality. So just the fact that we're exceedingly social animals, right? In other species and in us. Other species, a lot of people have no problem with that. Oh, yeah, sure, well, they're just animals. My question always is, what makes you think you're so freaking special? But we're not special snowflakes. Um, so if you think about, for example, let's think about, humans are pretty cool. Are there any societies, are there any cultures, see, that should be a dead giveaway right there, that, where people just live by themselves and just get together in the spring to mate? Right? Can you think of, I'm not an expert on other cultures of the world, but offhand, I can't think of any. We live in groups, even if it's still, if, if there are people that are living as hunter-gatherers. They're living in groups of maybe 50 to, 30 to 50 people that are differently related, so different levels of relatedness, so it's sort of an extended family, but you're still living in a group. Right? What the hell is that about people? I mean, it's interesting. If you know a little bit about bees, you realize that, that happens in bees because they're their genetics. There's some there's bees are weird. Sisters are more related to each other than they would be to their brothers or their own young. It's a bees are weird. And us, particularly. Plus they're organized and they can hurt you. And I, that's I don't trust social insects. <laughs> so yeah, social insects. You got your bees, you got your uh, termites, you got your wasps, your ants. <laughs> They're planning stuff. That, that, I find that disturbing. If they were bigger, they'd be scary. Like if these were this, the size of dogs, it's good that we don't have so much oxygen in our atmosphere and you could have bees that big. Perhaps though they'd be like lobsters and we'd eat them, they'd be delicious, a delicious delicacy. Because what are lobsters really just bugs from the sea, right? Delicious, delicious bugs from the sea. So why are we this, this way? Because you know what's interesting about humans? So a beehive, they're all related. That's one big family. One big, buzzy, creepy family. But humans, we all live, look at, look at all of us. Am I related to any of you more than 50% probably? by chance a little bit, some of you, some level. But we're not really, I'm no more related probably to you guys than I am to any other group of people. Okay. If one of you right now, uh, uh, I don't know, had a seizure, again, the class is taking a dark turn today. Uh, would we all stand around and go, well, not my sister, I don't care. No, we do something, right? Somebody go uh, do the CPR, and the other person would go get an ambulance, and I'd be crying in the corner, and we would help each other. Or if you find out someone in the class, if someone, I don't think, maybe let's pretend somebody in this class then, would you say, if someone could be saying, can I not take, take your notes? You go, no! Sure, just give them right back to me because you know some people are dicks and they don't give you your nose back. Right? 
So people are like, you lend them, the people you find out that you lend them a textbook once, and you never get it back, or you lend them your notes once, it never comes back. You know, it's interesting. What do you do when the notes never come back? Do you ever give them those notes again? No. On the other hand, if you've lent them their notes, the more likely in the future you would do the same thing. And they would ask you, perhaps. And in fact, that helps you and it helps them, doesn't it? So that little act of you helping somebody, it actually hurts you a little bit, not a lot. But if I give you my notes, I don't have them then. So that hurts me a little bit. But I get them back later. But later on, when I have to borrow yours, it hurts you a little bit. In the end, though, we've both been helped. Wow. But the person who screws you, takes your notes, you never let them stuff again. Right? You wouldn't do that. You go, no, no, that guy's a jerk. I'm not going to let him my notes ever again. And you remember those people. I remember people like that from when I was an undergrad, and I'll be 50 in June. And I remember people that screwed me around and didn't give me back notes. I really do. I know a student that borrowed a book from me in 1994 and hasn't given it back yet. <laughs> Interesting. So, not related to you, but we're, I'm going to help you out anyway. See, the thing is, in humans, there's something, we're pretty smart. I can keep track of that in my head. I can remember who and when and what. Other animals be a little harder for them. I'm not saying it doesn't happen in other animals, but this sort of what we call reciprocal altruism actually happens in humans. So it's, if it's reciprocal altruism, then it's not really altruism. Because if I do something for you, you do something for me later, it all counts at the end kind of thing. That's fascinating. Why do people do nice things for each other? Why should I do something for someone who's a competitor? Because they'll do something for me later. And I can keep score if they did something for me, and then I can do something for them later. Right? And we see that also, for example, we see that chimps. Chimps have an interesting mating system. Unlike humans, chimps, um, we got one male, just kind of like we saw in our Australopithecus and walking with cavemen, we got one male, and that one male is getting 95% of the mating opportunities. You might wonder, why are the other males even there? Well, they live somewhere. And they're usually juvenile, or, or just young adults. Now, do they ever get any meeting opportunities here? Yeah, they do. How? They trick the alpha male. How do they trick them? They distract them. And you can see this uh, in the wild. You'll get a couple of young males will go up to the alpha, and they'll just kind of distract them. They'll maybe get into sort of a, a fight. And of course, some of you may not know this, but most fights in animals are not lethal. They're Ritualize so nobody really gets hurt. Or they just go up and you know start just playing with them, grooming, I'm not gonna groom him. <laughs> Whatever. And while he's not looking, so Eddie and Steve, the, the champ, are doing this. So then uh, I don't know, Miles. <laughs> Miles? Um, well now that uh, his back's turned. <laughs> and he goes and mates with a couple females. 
Now that's interesting and it shows some planning. The neat part of this is next time, roles get reversed. Next time, the roles get reversed. So the one that got the mating opportunity and was the distracting. Now again, chimps can keep track of, because they're pretty cognitively uh, competent as well, they can keep track of who and when and what. We don't see that a lot in other animals. So this idea of what we call reciprocal altruism is probably where a lot of the social aspects of being a human come from. It's very advantageous if you can do it and it doesn't hurt you. And it doesn't hurt you. And the only way you can do it and have it not hurt you to non-relatives is by remembering if by keeping score, right? And we can. There. Now, Timbergen, Aniko Timbergen, who's a great ethologist, came up with what he said: four whys. Now. It's, it's, it's like it's proximate versus ultimate explanations. Proximate explanations are within the lifetime of the animal. Ultimate explanations are what the behavior, uh, and he was a, an ethologist, so he was talking about behavior, what it accomplishes or what the characteristic accomplishes. I don't like the term ultimate causation because it makes it sound better than proximate, and it's not. It just is a different word. But. So we can go further than the four whys are development. So if you're looking at a characteristic, you have to look at how it develops, Timbergen said. You have to look at its physiology. This would include, by the way, um, so this includes genetics. This includes learning. Okay? Because there's a physiological basis for that. Then we have to look at it historically. So where does it come from? Where does the behavior come from evolutionarily? And then we have to look at the selective angle. And that's basically looking at what it accomplishes, what selective pressure caused this change over time evolutionarily. <laughs> I didn't think that was that funny as a double thing. It is good having water because my voice isn't getting wrecked already. That's good. So if you think of something like simple behavior, I don't know, bird migration. Right? So why do birds fly south in the winter? Well, uh, there's a genetic program in the bird that when it hits a certain time of year, they get what's called migratory restlessness. Uh, they have an internal clock. And they also have an internal compass, tells them which direction to go. Physiologically, actually, there are, uh, if you look at, for example, pigeons uh, have um, receptors that are in their brain that are uh, uh, sensitive to the Earth's earth magnetic field, and they project uh, to, the, to, to the visual areas of the pigeon's um, brain, meaning, in fact, that it's probably the case that pigeons have kind of a heads up display compass which is pretty freaking cool. So there's that. Historically, 
I don't really know. That's, I don't know the evolution of migration. It's really hard. A lot of animals have migrated. That's a tough one. Selective pressure, there's less food around in the winter, so it's advantageous to leave. It's a good solution. The other solution, of course, I thought about was being a food store. So you find food you store it, you need Psychology concentrates and has concentrated for the longest time on the, on the proximate mechanisms, and that's fine, but it's half the story as well. That's just these two. So psychology is very interested in mechanisms. This we were talking about Darren Burke's paper the other day. Psychology likes mechanism. And I think that's fine, by the way. Um, someone has to talk about mechanism. You can't just talk about the evolution of something. I think looking at the mechanism of something is also important. But it is only half the story. And Timbergen said to truly understand a characteristic, you have to understand proximate and ultimate explanations. So development, physiology, history, and selective pressures. Questions so far? So, Mark, you, a lot of you probably heard about Margaret Mead um, and her travels in the, uh, I guess, sort of South Pacific Islander type people. Right. And she uh, reported that this is back in the 20s. Um, she found places where everything was different than here. Let's just say that. And that everything obviously was a cultural thing. So there was no effect in a biology. Um, this had a huge effect on anthropology and sociology and psychology. Now it turns out if you spend more time in the societies where Margaret Meekwood does, it uh, spent time. Turns out she got a lot of stuff really wrong. Um, so I don't think we have to take, we take, and frankly, she did some important work too. So again, I'm not, I don't want to try to trash her or other disciplines or psychology. What I'm saying is that on closer examination, a lot of the stuff that she said may not have been true. I'm not saying she was lying, because I don't think she was, but she had, it's a small sample size, at least. Small sample size. So I like to think of people, instead of, as far as their culture, which again, I find interesting, as sort of universal people. I like to think of humans, which is a pretty easy thing for an overeducated white man to say, by the way. Um, but I think talking about humans as humans and saying this is how people are because we're, if we look at all the cultures in the world, we're way more the same than we are different. I think this kind of notion can help, can help us understand each other uh, and maybe get over some of these cultural divides that are very small. They're very small. Most of the things are the same. The differences are these little tiny things. 
It is kind of, however, hard to change 100, oh, 100 years or so of scholarly work and, and assumptions. It's, it's a hard thing to do. But I shall do it! <laughs> so, now, I've, I'm, I'm making kind of a plea today for human nature. I'm saying there is human nature. It's not just that there isn't European nature, and there isn't African nature, and there isn't Arab nature, and there isn't uh, First Nations nature. Are those things important? Are those different people? For sure. Are they different cultures that are interesting? For sure. On the other hand, we're way more the same than we are different. So I'm talking about human nature, and we're a species of people. Because it's not like we're separate species. Right? All different cultures. So, when you say this human nature, you're not saying stuff is unchangeable. There's variability to the environmental variability and variability in genes. And of course, obviously, the interaction of those things. I just love this app when it works properly, that I have all my slides already, I'm controlling it all, and I can see what's next. Thank you so happy. It's got some nice examples. Uh, it's got a, a nice bit on violence, actually, that you should take a look at. Um, one of my favorites is stuff about killer sperm and people cheating on their spouses. Yeah, killer sperm. What? Killer sperm? Yes, killer sperm. Okay. cheat on their husbands, wives, girlfriends, and their boyfriends, sometimes all four of us. So, I never tired of that, I always get to laugh. Uh, so, people do that, and we know people do it, and by the way, I, I'm not asking anybody here if they've ever done that, I'm going to think about it, I don't want to do that, I'm not, that's not, I can't do that kind of psychology. I know just enough clinical and counseling to totally F your minds up. You know, I can really, I can say just enough about running in a, a, a computer network to crash the entire system. So, but, so I'm not asking if you've been through that kind of situation, but do you think that people cheat on their significant others, and I hate words like that, and partner sounds like you're running a business, and like girlfriend and boyfriend sounds like your children. What do people use? What do the kids say now? I don't know, anyway. In the 70s, people said, in the 70s, people said lover. And it's like, I didn't want to know that. I, I assumed that was happening, but yeah, you know, were you going to do that in front of me? So whatever. Let's go with partner. It's good and generic. The people cheat on their partner in order to have a child. Not usually. I think we can, we, can we safely say that? That usually people aren't trying to have a child when they're already, say, married or with somebody else. I think it's pretty safe bet. In fact, I think people probably take pretty good precautions, don't they? Yeah. Of course, experience in this matter, what I'm saying is, I don't think people are like, well, I think I'll cheat my wife and try to get a woman pregnant. I don't think that happens. <laughs> I don't think that's the kind of... Okay. So it's like nothing... It's, it's something else is going on. So... But what's the function of sex? To have kids. To have a 
have young offspring. That's the function of sex. That's what it's there for. It's also a good time. But that's not what it's there for. It's not the, that's a, not the function of it. So you look at a sexual relationship between someone who's cheating on their partner. Okay. And if you look at the sperm in the ejaculate of a guy who is cheating on his wife with another woman, when he's cheating, when, he, when he's having sex with a woman who's uh, not his wife or his partner or whatever, I just have both wife and husband, okay? His sperm has more, more sperm in it, by the way. His, his ejaculate has more sperm in it than, than typically. And it also has more killer sperm. What is killer sperm? Killer sperm are sperm that kill other sperm. They are there to kill the other guy's sperm. Presumably, this woman is also with somebody else. She'll have sex with you too. But the idea is that he's sperm to him. When she has sex with her husband, again, just using that generic term, her vaginal secretions are more acidic, more likely to kill the sperm of the guy she's supposed to be with. It's like their bodies are actually trying to have a baby. That's exactly the opposite of what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'm going to screw around with my wife and my husband. I hope we, I don't get them, we're going to really try hard not to get pregnant. You think, well, how do they get the data? Um, this is fascinating. You find people who are cheating on their spouses, uh, and you collect their sperm in a condom, and you have them do vaginal swaps, and you As, you put, you put as, okay. There's a book called Killer Sperm. It's, it's a really amazing book, too. So, okay, so does that, I'm not, does that make sense to understand the notion here, what's going on? By the way, women who are with their lovers rather than their husbands have more orgasms than they do with their husband. You might say, well, maybe that's why they're cheating on their husband. But <laughs> do you know what the function of you know what the function of a male orgasm is? It's to ejaculate. What's the function of a female orgasm in a human? What's it accomplished? And again, the answer is it's this. <laughs> the answer is, uh, and they didn't know this, this wasn't something people knew up until maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, the function of female orgasm is, and you can actually, there are videos of this you can watch, but I don't know weird page sites. Um, science here, guys. Um, what happens is, the sperm is pooled in the vagina like that, okay? And the, when the woman has an orgasm, the cervix reaches down and picks up sperm. So it does that. <laughs> That's pretty neat. So they have more orgasms. Yeah, yeah. It's probably maybe it's just better. <laughs> and more exciting because he's different. Sure. But again, this makes it more likely for her to have a kid. Now again, she's probably the best part where you're calling him. Or is or she would tell. Wow. So the function of cheating on your spouse is actually to have a kid. 
Is it the cause of it? You can look at a lot of causal mechanisms. When do most people cheat on their spouses? And uh, very often it's after not successfully having a kid with their spouse, even though that's not even been a bone of contention in a relationship. It's mind-boggling. Questions about that? naturalistic fallacy. And that says that it's this fallacy that if something is genetic or if something has a biological basis to it at all, um, it makes it right or wrong. something has a natural basis to it, quote, natural basis doesn't make it right or wrong. Just like natural food isn't any better, necessarily. It's organic. I want some of you to try to show me what inorganic food looks like. <laughs> Was a lot of silicon in this food instead of carbon? When McDonald's make ribs, there's the yoga in that ingredients. Yeah, you know that, that doesn't matter. The whole yoga mat thing, that's up there with you know, salt is chlorine and sodium. It's that kind of reasoning. So I wouldn't eat chlorine or sodium on their own. Uh, that's, don't believe anything from the quote food babe. We'll see that a lot. She's an idiot. So just because something's natural or whatever, genetic basis to it, biological basis, made right or wrong. And this is one place where I think people that, 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 that criticize evolutionary psychology misunderstand evolutionary psychology because they say, oh, so I will, I will happily sit here and say to you that it is biologically sensible, it seems to me, that women all over the world are the ones that do most of the childbearing. You know why? Because food comes out of women. It makes quite a bit of sense. And that... Biologically, that's sensible. Are you a sexist? No. I'm pretty sure in our family we split the child care 50-50, actually. I think the first kid, Isabel, did more, and I think I probably changed more diapers on Jonathan than Isabel. I think. Is that too loud? She's two doors over. She didn't help me. But I think we split it 50-50. Do I think it's natural? Yes. Do I think it's right or wrong? That's not even a question. It just is. Science is amoral. Society's determined, for example, that monogamy is cool and polygamy is not. Right? We pretty much, in fact, we have laws that say this. Our society, right, in the West, it's pretty clear it says it's one man, one woman. We're actually, most humans are polygamous. If you look at um, hunter-gatherer societies, and if you look at humans up till, oh, just before, and also, also if you look at number of sex partners men have versus women in their lifetime, we're actually mildly polygamous that men have more partners than women. My phone's on fire. It's so hard. What the hell's it doing? Um, 
Sometimes it gets like that. Anyway, it's like it's looking for a signal or something, and it's like you click on it. But most of us are faithful to our partners, even though the, quote, natural way for humans to be probably isn't that way. Because something's natural doesn't make it right or wrong. It just is. And it doesn't mean it's unchangeable. Right? So it may be natural for women to do most childcare. It probably is. But then you get right or wrong. And frankly, we've decided over the last, probably especially 20, 30 years, that guys should be part of that too. And it's only fair and right. And in fact, we're working on a lot of other stuff. All right, probably should stop here. We're going to get a time. We'll finish this one up next time, and thank you very much. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.